Good morning. If you'd like to go ahead and take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Corinthians. Corinthians chapter 15. It's <clears throat> where we're going to be spending some time this morning. Just to give you a reminder, as we, it's been a while since we've looked at the book of, uh, of, of Corinthians. What we had started last year um, and kind of taken a break from for a while was systematically going through the first book uh, of, the, of the two books of the letters to the Corinthians and noticing the message that Paul was bringing, the message he was bringing to the, to the Corinthian people. And it's interesting, that message that, that he had proclaimed to them starts off with a problem, a problem that he saw in the church there. And that problem was that there was no unity. We can understand the need for unity as seen in the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17 as he pleaded uh, and prayed to, to God that those who would, who would come after him, all that would belong to him, would find themselves unified together in the same way that he and God were unified together. So Jesus pleaded for this, and then we get to the book of 1 Corinthians, we find that that was not the case. And that shouldn't come as a huge shock to us. And in the history of mankind, we have found a difficulty for people to find themselves united. Uh, going back all the way to the, to the Israelites, Oftentimes we saw periods where they were not united together with one another. They were not united in the same mission that they, that they were called to, to be a part of. And so it should come as no shock when we get to 1 Corinthians uh, and, and around chapter 1, 2, and 3 that John, uh, Paul is discussing the same problems uh, that are going on in Corinth. He tells them that they are bickering with one another over who they will belong to. Some of them had said, I am of Apollos, and some have said, well, I am of, of Paul, and some have even said, I am of, of Peter. And he was saying, none of these men were, were, were killed for you. None of these men died for you or shed their blood for you. So why would you argue over which one you were belong to? Only Christ is the one that died for you. And so as he begins to set about fixing some of these problems that are going on in Corinth, he goes and, and kind of highlights a lot of the things that are causing some of the the conflict here. And as he goes through, he talks about issues with, with head coverings, and we've looked at that. He talks about issues of, of uh, proper attitudes. He did, tells them the, the attitude that he has, that it's not about what's best for me. It's about what's best for all those around me, which is the, the proclaiming of the truth of the gospel. He talked about the great power of love. And, and there seemed to have been a conflict in Corinth going on over spiritual gifts. Which gift was better? Was the gift of, of healing or the gift of, of being able to speak with tongues or to have knowledge or to interpretate? And he was telling them that all of these things are going to go away. These gifts that you are talking about, the gift of speaking in tongues and healing, they won't be here forever. They're here to serve a purpose. They're here to confirm to unbelievers the words that, that are being spoken. But after a while, these, these gifts will be gone. But the greatest gift of all is going to be love. Love is going to be, and when we get over to John, or 1 John, he, we, spent, uh, we spent several months looking at that. For, love is the, the great test of whether one is a, it belongs to God or not. And so that was, that was the message that he was bringing. And now, as we've gathered to the, close to the end of the book, he's still talking about some of the things that had divided them. And in 1, in 1 Corinthians 15... In verses 50 through 53, that's where we'll be reading from this morning, we find that he is going to describe to them a little bit now about the mystery of the resurrection. See, in his epistles to the Corinthians, he had argued strongly for the resurrection of the dead. And in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15, 
He says, now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He was, he was baffled that there are those who could say there will be no resurrection. Well, you know, that, that again, just like unity is still a problem today, that's still a problem today. There are still many who don't believe in the resurrection, don't even believe in life after death. And then verse 13, he goes on to say, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. He said, if there, what is the point of following Christ if you do not believe in the resurrection? There is no point because there, there is no resurrection. Christ is still dead in the tomb. There is no point he was just a man. Yes, a man that came and spoke great things, but he died and that was the end. That is the, per, that is the point if there is no resurrection. And so Paul is going to go on to argue against this. He's going to proceed to reveal much about the resurrection of the dead, uh, what it would, uh, when it would happen, how it would happen, and what kind of resurrection it would be. What kind of body would there be in the resurrection? And towards the end of this discourse, in verses 50 through 53, is where we read him calling it a mystery. He says in these passages, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. <clears throat> In verse 51, he says, I tell you a mystery. And not that it was a, a secret, not that it was some unintelligible knowledge, not some, some great thing that, just, that only Paul knew, but it was something that had previously not been revealed. He was making known fully what had only been revealed in part before. And again, we'll find this term mystery used oftentimes in this sense. Paul likes to use that word mystery in this way in several places. Just real, real quick glance, instead of looking at all those, we're just going to look at two. In Romans chapter 16, Romans 16 verses 25 through 26 says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest. By the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. That secret since the world began wasn't, wasn't some great unknowable mystery. It was the coming of Christ and the message that he had come to seek and to save the lost as we talked about in class this morning. It was made manifest to them through the preaching of the gospel. Again, he would use a, a very similar language in, in Ephesians. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 3 through 4. In this passage, he says here, How by, that by the revelation made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you uh, read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. He said that, that, that great mystery is not something that is just, it is just meant to be beyond our knowledge. We just don't have the, the, the right to know what he's talking about. In fact, in Ephesians 3, he says you can know. You can understand the mystery, not by going up on a, on a mountain and sitting and meditating for for years and reaching enlightenment, but simply by reading. Reading my word, reading the things that, that the Bible says about Jesus reveals to us the mystery. And it's a mystery to all those that, is, that have not come to it, that have not come to that understanding through, through the same passages or the same means, which is to simply study. So what is the mystery then in 1 Corinthians 15, the mystery of the resurrection? What has been revealed by Christ and His apostles 
about the resurrection. And even though it may have been hidden in times past, certainly today and in, in, in their teaching, they assert many things, uh, and one being the very fact of the resurrection. I want us to look at what Jesus taught in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, he taught there would definitely be a resurrection. <coughs> John chapter 5, verse 28. Jesus said, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming <clears throat> in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. In fact, in the very next chapter, chapter 6, he says in verse 39, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of, all, that of all He has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. Jesus promised that those who believe in Him will be raised. Jesus promised that that resurrection would happen both for those who have done good and for those who have done evil. They will come forth from the grave. He says again in verse 44 of chapter 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 54, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood. Again, that's an allusion to, to what he would establish in the Lord's Supper, which we partook of this morning. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus spoke without any sort of, of, of deception. There will be a resurrection. There will be, at the last day, a moment in time when all those who have died will be raised up from the graves, both those who have done good and those who have done evil, and all those who remain on the earth will be, will be raised up as, as well. There is no doubting that this is a fact. Jesus himself is proclaiming it, but he's not the only one. His apostles went on to carry that message as well. In Acts chapter 4, <clears throat> Acts chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, <coughs> Peter and John spoke, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> Peter and John spoke um, to the people in verse 1. It says that they spoke to the people, the priests, the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Now, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They were Jews. They believed in God, but they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't, they didn't believe in life after death. And they came upon them, being greatly disturbed, that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And so we see there that Peter and John are carrying on Jesus' doctrine, preaching in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. In Acts chapter 23, if we scoot on down a little bit past this, we get into the life of Paul. Paul is preaching in Acts chapter 23, verse 6. Uh, and he's, he's found himself in a predicament where he is, he is uh, amongst the, the high priest and, and many of the, the, uh, of the, the men of the Jews, the, the Sanhedrin. And he finds himself there, and he, he says in verse 6, when he perceived that one part were Sadducees, again, not believing in the resurrection, and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. 
Now, some would say, well, listen, Paul was known to be pretty crafty. Paul was known to be able to, to get himself out of a tough spot by using his words. He was just calling upon and playing upon the emotions of these men when he talked about the resurrection of the dead. Well, if that were the case, then the very next chapter, we will, we will find the truth behind his words in verse 15. Chapter 24, verse 15, Paul says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and of the unjust. Paul taught this doctrine of the resurrection of the dead and he taught it because it was a great comfort. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says in verses 16 through 18, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then, the, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul not only believed in the resurrection, not only taught the resurrection, but one could say was built up, comforted, given strength because of the knowledge of the resurrection. He knew that the worst things that could happen to him in this life were not going to separate him from an eternity with God. And so the fact of the resurrection is proclaimed by Jesus and by those who would follow Him, His closest followers, the apostles. And the fact is, the Jews, they also knew. They had a hope for the resurrection. If you notice back over in Acts, back over in Acts chapter 23, we read about some of the Jews there. The Sadducees didn't believe, but the Pharisees, they confessed both angels and the Spirit. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the body. They believed in the resurrection uh, at the end of times that they would once again live. Even though they had died in this world, they would rise to a new life. And right now, Jesus and His apostles, are taking the hope that they already have. Even still a mystery to them. They don't fully understand it. But they are taking it and compounding it even more to build them up, to make them stronger in the teachings of Christ. And they do this by making it very clear what the force is behind this resurrection. Look over to Matthew chapter 22. Again, we're going to look... At the words of Jesus. He attributed the force behind the resurrection directly to the power of God. He said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 29, uh, whenever the Sadducees came to him, and once again, let's remember, these Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They believe that once you die, you are, that, that is it, you are, you are buried, you are, you are dead, and that's the end of your story. And yet, they come to him in verse 23, and they say, they say, teacher, if a man dies having no children, and his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother, and there were seven brothers, and they all die, but the wife outlives them all, uh, and after each one dies, he, he marries this woman, and, and, and at the end, when, when, when the resurrection happens, whose wife will she be? 
Now, this is a people who don't believe in the resurrection. They have come asking this question of Jesus solely to try to, to trap him, to find something to say, aha, we've got you. But Jesus answers them in verse 29. He says, you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, the question was about the resurrection. And Jesus tells them, you don't understand. You don't understand the power that God has. In saying so, he reminds the Sadducees who had denied the resurrection that the power of God is what is behind the resurrection. And of course, as the angel told Mary, whenever she was told, you will bring forth life where there is no life. There will be a child born even though you are a virgin. And she said, how can this be? And the angel said, nothing is impossible with God. The same way, resurrection, life coming from a dead corpse. How is this possible? The force behind that is the force of the power of God. And with God, nothing will be impossible. And Jesus, after saying this, His followers again emphasized that it was the power of God which brought about the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, <clears throat> earlier in our letter, Paul has already spoken of this once in verse 14. He says, God both raised up His Lord, or raised up the Lord, God raised up Jesus, and will also raise us up by His power. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and in this time in verse 14 again, he says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and, and through His... I'm in verse uh, chapter 2, I apologize. Chapter 4, verse 14, saying, Knowing that He who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus, Jesus and will present us with you. Paul was talking about the same power, the same power behind the life of Jesus after he, was, after he was crucified and buried in that tomb, but he did not stay there. God brought him back to life. And that same God that brought Jesus back to life was going to be faithful to bring us back to life, to resurrect the dead as well. Now it's difficult for us to comprehend this. No doubt about it. It's difficult for, for me to think of my loved ones. It's difficult for me to think of how a, a body physically dead can be raised back to life. But even though it's difficult for us to comprehend that, it is not difficult for God to do that. Now also taught by Christ and, the, and His apostles, beyond the fact that there will be a resurrection, and that resurrection is going to be filled with the power of God, and, and with God all things are possible, they also went on to speak a little bit about the fact that the resurrection is going to be universal. Jesus taught back in, Matthew, in John chapter 5. We've read this passage already. John chapter 5, verses 28 through 29. He said, All who are in the graves will come forth both those who have done good and those who have done evil will come forth. One will experience a resurrection of life and the other will experience a resurrection of condemnation. That is what Jesus taught. That is what the, our Lord, the Christ, said would happen. And Paul went on to, to, to reflect this in his teaching. In Acts chapter 24 and verse 15, <clears throat> as, we, as we read a moment ago, all, both the just and the unjust. Acts 
Acts 24, verse 15, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be resurrection of the dead, both the just and the unjust. In 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, he goes on to explain that a little bit more to the Corinthians when he says, just as in Adam all die. He's looking back to the book of Genesis now. He's looking back to the very beginning saying, just as, as in Adam, death came into the world. Before Adam, there was no death. But after Adam chose to sin, after they partook of the, of the tree, uh, fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, when they did that, God, uh, the consequences of that was to bring death into the world. He says, just as in Adam, all die, even, though in, even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. Not few, not some, not the chosen select, but all, all suffered death after the sin of Adam. And all will be resurrected back to life in the great day. The fact, the force, and the universality of the resurrection had been taught by Jesus and by His apostles. But this wasn't the first time that it was mentioned. If we think back to, to the Old Testament for a minute, turn your, turn your Bibles back to Job. In the book of Job, we see that even though we know very little about Job, don't know a whole lot about who Job was, even a lot of speculation about when the book of Job even occurs in history, one thing we do know about Job is that it he understood a little bit about the resurrection. In Job chapter 19, Job is speaking of his trust in his Redeemer. And he says in verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I, sh I shall see God. Job understood that just because of death, he would not be eternally separated from God. Daniel is another place in the Old Testament where we also see an understanding about the resurrection. In Daniel chapter 12, he says in verses 1 through 3, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was, since there, uh, never was since there was a nation. Even to that time and at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall, sh shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is not a new message that Jesus brought. He, he didn't come to the earth and just all of a sudden, whoa, what's, it, what's this idea of life after death? No, it had been taught. It had been proclaimed. But now it was more clearly revealed. Certainly, when Daniel spoke this prophecy, and this is a, 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 a prophecy spoken of in very figurative language. It is, as, as many of the prophets spoke of, in apocalyptic language. But as he spoke this, <coughs> he didn't fully understand. 
He longed to know, as the Hebrew writer would tell us. But with the coming of Christ and the coming of His apostles and their message that they taught, the mysteries were fully revealed. And one thing that was, that was also included in this was this idea of the time of the resurrection. This is a, one could say, a hot topic. This is the one that seems like everybody, uh, want, they, these are what we have our date pickers. They want to set a date. This is the time that the resurrection is going to come. This is what we want to know. And yes, Jesus reveals the time. And the apostles revealed the time. But when was that time? Maybe we'll remember what Jesus spoke back in John chapter 6. We read earlier, verse 39 through 40. Again and again and again, the resurrection will occur at the last day. In other words, the resurrection will occur when the Lord comes again. Over and over again, Jesus spoke of raising the dead at the last day. In 1 Corinthians 15, in the chapter we are, we are using for our, our study, in verses 20 through 20, uh, Verses 22 through 26, we read there, uh, Paul says, As in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards those who are Christ said is coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Paul wrote, that the, that the time of the resurrection would occur when Jesus comes again, when Jesus returns, when Jesus comes to deliver His kingdom, which if He is coming to deliver His kingdom, His kingdom must already be established. He's come to deliver the kingdom to the Father, having destroyed the last enemy, death. Death was destroyed by Jesus when He came up out of that grave, when it couldn't hold Him in that tomb. When he couldn't keep his soul in the Hadean realm, in the realm of the dead, it was shown once and for all that God, as Jesus told the, the Sadducees, is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. Jesus' kingdom is, is established. And on that last day, it will be given back to the Father, handed over to Him, and that is the time of the resurrection. Paul would also say, as we read in verse 52, it is the time at the last trumpet. Whenever the, the, the trumpet is, is significant in that it is the same symbolic language that was used over and over again through Jewish history to announce the coming of the King. When Christ returns is the message that Jesus and His apostles were preaching. When He returns, that will be the time of the resurrection. Now, does that mean we are given a date? No. Does that mean that we are given a, a period? We can kind of be a little familiar. Let's start looking now. No. What it means is God is going to send His Son back to the world again. Not to come and to, uh, to, to, to stand upon it, but to draw the people to Him. All the people, both that have done good and that have done bad, some will come to this resurrection of a life eternal. A life with Him. And, and, and we talked about this in class too. That, that idea of life eternal. That's not a time span. That is a state. That is a state. We think, sometimes think of states like we're in a state of happiness, a state of, of uneasiness, a state of fear. 
When he says we are drawn up to life eternal, that's a state that is far blessed than, than anything we could ever consider. It's a life forever, far beyond outside the realms of time, spent gathered around the throne of God, worshiping Him, living with Him, experiencing the joy that comes only from Him for all eternity. And yet at that same time, there will be those who are resurrected, not to life eternal, but to condemnation eternal, shame eternal. We can understand the direct opposite of what that means. A life far separated from God, outside the realms of time. But one thing that was not taught by Jesus and by the apostles is something that is taught very, very often today. And that is the idea of multiple resurrections. How many resurrections will there be? <coughs> there are many people, many different faiths, many different beliefs in the world that speak of this idea of multiple resurrections. Uh, if you look to some of the others that, uh, that believe in reincarnation, there is the resurrection of life over and over and over again as one climbs the ladder towards enlightenment. And even within the Christian faith, there is the idea of multiple re resurrections. The premillennialist view, uh, and, and, and perhaps others, but they teach that there will be more than just one resurrection. At the very least, all premillennialists uh, in their view teach that there will at least be two resurrections. One at the beginning of a millennium or a, a, this, this thousand year reign of Christ uh, for all those who believe, and one for all those who disbelieve, the unbelievers, at the end of that resurrection. Now, if you take that at the very minimum, there is also many different flavors of, of this idea. Uh, and, and so there are some that call themselves dispensational premillennialists, uh, and they add even more to this. They say there will also be this period of tribulation, this period of trouble for seven years, and there will be a resurrection even at the, either at the beginning of that for those who are saints so that they will not have to endure it, or maybe they are, they are mid-trib, so they'll... Uh, three and a half years into the tribulation, then they will be resurrected uh, and, and, and the believers will be called up to heaven so they won't have to endure the rest. Or some believe, no, that the, the people living on the earth or, and all those who have died in Christ, they will all be resurrected at the end of this seven years of tribulation. And then also at the end of the millennium, there will be a, a resurrection of all those that came to Christ, that became uh, saints during that, that period. So, so for some, they're even getting into four and five and even six resurrections. Now, we don't say this and we don't speak on this to try and, try and pick on anybody else's belief. That's not the purpose of this. I could, I could preach all about the, the things that, these, that, that, that are believed, the different beliefs that are out there. That doesn't serve us any purpose. The purpose that we have today is to know the truth. What did Paul preach? What did Jesus talk about? What do we know? To understand that, let's consider a few things that are sometimes misinterpreted. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians with me. <clears throat> In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Verses 13 through 16. We already read verses 16 through 18. Let's step back a little bit and look at 13 through 16. Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, 
lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now this passage has been used and has been misunderstood in the past to say, well look, there's, there's one resurrection, the resurrection of those who, are, who, who belong to the Lord. They will be resurrected first. But just because this is talking about the resurrection of, of the righteous does not, does not mean that it does not include also the resurrection of the unrighteous. That resurrection, as Jesus has already said, will occur. There, there, there is no, there's no separating them. They will all be raised, both the just and the unjust. <coughs> but the truth of this passage tells us that the resurrection is going to be something that is not a secret. The resurrection is going to be something that we're not going to miss. It says in verse 16, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. Other places, figurative language uses the idea of the skies being rolled back as a scroll. There will be no mistaking the great day of the Lord. Another passage that oftentimes is misunderstood is over in Revelation chapter 20. As we've been studying the book of Revelation here on Wednesday nights, we haven't quite made it here yet. But what we have understood over and over and over again is that this book was written to give hope to a people who were being murdered for their faith. To a people who, because they, would, they chose to follow God and only God, were drug out of their houses, were, were crucified, were burned alive, were, were separated from their families, were, were experiencing horrible things. And this book came at a time so that they would not give up. So that they would remember who God is and remember His ultimate victory. And in Revelation chapter 20, verses 4-6, through 6, we see that same language to those same people. It says in verse 4, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and he shall reign with him a thousand years. This is one of those passages. A lot of times people turn to and go, Oh, ha, ha. look, the first resurrection. So there must be multiple resurrections. But again, we must remember. We must remember the context of this passage. And we must remember to never take a passage and make it contradict anything else. It must be in harmony with the Word of God. When Christ said, they will all arise, He meant that. The just and the unjust will arise. So we are not talking about a resurrection here, a resurrection there, and a little bit happening at this time and that time. The truth is, many have taken this and based their beliefs to prove a, uh, a doctrine, uh, an idea of this rapture or secret taking of the believers. And it's oftentimes in relation to a seven-year period of trouble for mankind. We've already seen Jesus spoke only of one resurrection. 
This passage must not contradict that. The thousand-year reign of the beheaded souls is simply figurative language looking to, uh, to those who died under, in that time, those who died under the, the persecution of men like Domitian. And even, and even happening before that with Nero, but, uh, but especially moving forward uh, for, for many years under Rome, the people who gave their lives gave everything for God to serve Him, to follow Him. They didn't just die and were buried and that was it. It wasn't the end of their life. No. The message that came to them from God says that they were standing around the throne. In fact, it says they sat on them and judgment was committed. They were victorious. The resurrection brings hope to Christians who are persecuted, to Christians who are walking under the constant threat of Satan and his attempts to draw us away from the truth of the Lord. Let's read down just a little bit further. In Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, John says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which they were written in the book, in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. John describes the resurrection as the gathering of all who have ever walked the face of the earth together at the same time to be judged by a holy, righteous God. John says the same thing that Jesus said. They are all to be resurrected. Both those who have done good to life and those who have done evil to death. And then finally, the mystery of what sort of body we would have in the resurrection. Again, a thing that was causing some contention between the, the Christians in Corinth. Paul goes on to speak about that <coughs> in, the, in the closing of his book. And what he describes in the body of the resurrection is that it will be gloriously changed. It will be different. And he uses the idea of a seed. In 1 Corinthians 15.35, he says, Someone will say, How are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. So he says you put a seed in the ground. It doesn't sprout up a seed. It sprouts up a plant, a flower, a tree. But the seed must die to give forth life to what it will bring. 
He goes on to say, God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, but it is raised in incorruption. Our physical bodies, as he goes on to say, will go into the ground. They will be sown in dishonor, but raised up in glory. They will be sown in weakness, as he says in verse 43, but raised up in power. They will be sown as a natural body, a physical body. But they will be not raised up as natural physical bodies, but rather as spiritual bodies, as he says in verses 44 through 49. Those alive at Christ's coming are going to undergo this change as well. Why? Because verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So a change will take place. And how does it describe it? In verse 52, we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. It will be instantaneous. And that which is corruptible, and that which is mortal, will be made incorruptible, immortal. So it'll be a glorious change, but it'll also be a glorious transformation. I want us to consider one more passage, and then we will wrap this lesson up. Philippians chapter 3. <coughs> Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. Paul again says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly, eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the workings by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. That which is lowly will be transformed to that which is glorious. The body will be like His resurrected body. No longer bound in chains to, to death, not to ever die again, but to live forever. According to the working by which He is able. In other words, Matthew 22, verse 29, by the power of God. Luke chapter 1, verse 37, with God all things are possible. This has been you know, 40 minutes of speaking about the resurrection, and it doesn't do it justice. It doesn't begin to uncover the mountain of, of what has been said about the hope for the resurrection. There is much more to be said. And there is definitely more that we would like to know. But Paul said enough to reveal that the mystery of the resurrection does does some very important things. One, it takes away the sting of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 55-57 Death, where is your sting? Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
we have a victorious hope for the future because we know of the power of the resurrection. Death doesn't have a sting. Hades doesn't have a victory. And we have an eternally based power of motivation. Verse 58, the passage of 1 Corinthians 15 that's probably most well known. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Robert Spears used to always say when I was growing up, when you see a therefore, you need to look back and find out what it's there for. Why does he make this statement? Why should we be steadfast? Why should we be movable? Why do we know that our labor is not in vain? Because of the victory in Christ Jesus over death, over Hades, through the power of God as seen in the resurrection. I hope this morning you are making it your aim to be ready for the glorious resurrection to come. And we can help with that. We can assist in that if it would be your desire to be found ready at His coming. <coughs> we think of Matthew chapter 26 when He speaks of the, uh, or excuse Matthew chapter 25 when He speaks of the, the ten virgins, those who are ready to have their, their light, lamps trimmed and, and ready for the coming of the bridegroom and those who, who had, had not been ready. Which will describe us at the coming of the Lord, at the last day, at the sounding of the trumpet, when the shout of the Lord will come and, and, and we all will see the Lord descending from the clouds, will you be ready? His scriptures are clear on how to be ready. First, we have to believe in Him, that He is the Christ, that He came from the Father, that He has given His life for sin, and that He has returned to the Father to prepare a place for us. Are we willing to confess that to others? And are we willing to repent of the sins that we have committed in the past, the way in which we walked before, that old man, we must be willing to shed him, to put on a new life in Christ. We do that through baptism, which we are forgiven for those sins. And then we spend every day, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, because of the power of that resurrection, steadfast, marching towards that goal. In just a moment, we're going to sing number nine in the supplement i got to admit, number nine is not a song that I oftentimes think about for an invitation, but what better song to sing when we consider, are we making ourselves ready? A song that asks God to prepare us, to prepare us to be a sanctuary. That word sanctuary, not a word that we think about a lot, but sanctuary is a place reserved. It is a place that is holy. You think of a wildlife sanctuary. It's a place that can't be touched. Hunters can't come in and, and kill that big eight, nine, ten point buck that's marching around in there. And he knows it too. That's why he goes in there. We're asking God to make us a place of sanctuary. A place reserved for His power. A place reserved for His glory. For His honor. And we do that by molding ourselves to, the, to His will. If there is some way in which we can help you with that this morning, won't you please come forward as we stand and sing this song.